Welcome to Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. On this episode, we share a conversation between Whitney Kimball Coe from the Rural Assembly and Anthony Flacavendo, a farmer in southwestern Virginia, as well as an author, political candidate, and most recently, co-founder of the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative. This interview comes from the Everywhere Radio podcast produced by the Rural Assembly. That is followed by remembrances from three of the folks who spoke at a memorial for Bell Hooks, which was held at Berea College on April 14th. Bell, who was born Gloria Jean Watkins in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, died December 15, 2021. Bell Hooks came back to Kentucky to serve as a distinguished professor in residence in Appalachian Studies at Berea College in 2004. From that point on, she made her home there. The international outpouring of grief and love for Bell Hooks that came with her passing may have surprised many in this region and this state who were unaware that such a renowned figure lived amongst us. We begin with Everywhere Radio. The good news is that there are hundreds of people in small towns and rural communities around the country who are creating much better alternatives. Not just talking about it, not just pondering um, or writing, some of that, but mostly doing. That's Anthony Flacavento, this week's guest on Everywhere Radio. Everywhere Radio is a production of the Rural Assembly, and I'm your host, Whitney Kimball Coe. Each episode, I spotlight the good, scrappy, and joyful ways rural people and their allies are building a more inclusive nation. Before we get to Anthony, I'd like to talk about the Rural Assembly Everywhere virtual event that will be held May 10th and 11th. It's for rural advocates and the rural curious, listeners and leaders, neighbors and admirers. We'll enjoy two days of virtual programming featuring artists and poets, civic leaders and experts, you can register for free at ruralassembly.org. Anthony Flacavento is a farmer, author, and co-founder of the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative, an organization that makes the case for repairing political, economic, and cultural divides across our country. Anthony is the son of immigrants who found their way to New York City and then Baltimore, and as a young adult, Anthony made his way to Appalachia where he became an undergraduate at the University of Kentucky, studying agriculture and environmental science. He fell in love with the region and eventually put down roots in Southwest Virginia, where he continues to write, farm, and organize. Anthony is a passionate apologist and advocate for rural people, the land, and the power of local relationships to drive change. In 2018, he was the Democratic candidate for Congress for Virginia's 9th District, a district that is larger than the state of New Jersey, and his campaign was focused on building solidarity among Southwest Virginia's working and middle class and promoting policies that honor the connection between ecological well-being and economic health. Anthony lost his 2018 bid, but continued to pursue his passion for building networks and opportunities for progressive political action. And he launched the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative, nicknamed Ruby, with a host of partners and their members. Ruby developed strategies and trainings designed to encourage leaders, particularly those with a liberal or progressive bent, to think, act, and respond differently, 
to make the case for rural inclusion in progressive politics, and to champion the common interests of working and middle-class Americans. Anthony is the author of Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change. And his book has been used by practitioners, students, and academics across the country. So I'm really pleased to have Anthony here with us on Everywhere Radio. Thank you, Anthony, for saying yes to this conversation. Oh, I did so very willingly, Whitney. Thanks. (laughs) Wonderful. I wondered if you could just start by telling me a little bit about your formation. I gave, you know, a pretty lengthy, I think, intro, Mm -hmm. um, but I want to know more about your journey to becoming an advocate for Appalachia and for rural populations. Sure. You know, I grew up in a pretty non-political family, kind of a lower middle class family in Baltimore. Uh, Great, great family, but nobody was really political. I found myself, um, the Italians would say, with... uh, I was really frustrated with the world that I began to learn about when I was a a teenager and wanted to do something. And and so for the first um, few years from high school, college, a little bit after college, I guess you could say I was driven by the desire to build a more just world. I just, I I thought, you know, we, we had so much suffering, so much injustice and unfairness in the world. And um, so that's how I initially got involved, and there was a very strong church uh, religious component to it as well. For a while, I worked for the Catholic Diocese in Southwest Virginia, directing their Office of Justice and Peace. And so all of that was um, probably my initial formation. What happened when when I went to UK, the University of Kentucky, and then started working first for the what was then called the Soil Conservation Service, now NRCS, and then I worked for an engineering firm doing strip mine reclamation, is that was really my first immersion into Appalachia. This We're talking now about the late 70s. So during that period, the late 70s, early 80s, I found myself working in Appalachia, didn't know a clue about it, read Harry Cottle's book, Night Comes to the Cumberland, then start, started re- met Harry Cottle, which was a wonderful thing, and then started just doing other reading. But what I, what I discovered was I had pretty much the typical prejudices about country people that city folks have. Um, sort of a, a sense that I wanted to help them because they were pathetic and couldn't help themselves. It was that. I mean, I hate to admit it, but it was tr- it's true. That's where I was coming from initially. And it didn't take long at all, even just this strip mine reclamation job, which which wasn't a job about politics or culture, to very quickly get that idea slammed by ordinary people who I found were both smart about things that really mattered and also uh, very articulate in how they talked about it usually with about 5% of the words that I used. <laughs> they, were, they were nailing things. So it kind of, uh, it turned me around a little bit. I started to see that uh, it wasn't about coming into an area and uh, helping people. It was about settling in an area, becoming a neighbor, and working with folks. Um, well, I, I, wanna, I want you to say a little bit more about the stereotyping that happens to Appalachians and, and rural populations and how that is shaped in your, in your mind, you know, politics um, and policy outcomes in where we live here in Appalachia. Yeah. I mean, some of it is the way we have this, this um, 
this two-tiered notion about education, and which is deeply ingrained in our country. It's not specifically rural versus urban, although it breaks out along those lines a lot. And it is that higher education um, is is book learning. It's going to college. It's the academic framework, and that everything else is necessary, but a lesser form of education. Um, and it's very prevalent, and it's the basis upon which people who have the opportunity for higher education quickly begin to think of themselves as being in a position of knowledge um, that people who don't have that book learning don't have. So it automatically sets up, I think, a, a power kind of dynamic that's, that's terrible. I was on a call with somebody just a week or two ago, real smart person, talking about some political things. And at one point, they were talking about the fact that Democrats cluster in cities and Republicans are now more in rural areas. And he talked about being in, that uh, the people in the city, those were the places where there was a lot of well-educated people. And in the country, there was lower education levels. And I said, well, not not exactly. I said... I know a lot of people who haven't been to college who have deep understanding of issues that people in the city have no clue about. And, and I'm, I'm talking about like really weighty issues around food production and how the ecosystem works and the forests work. And a lot of the most knowledgeable, insightful people with real technical understanding never went to college for it. So it's, it's reframing what it means to be educated. That's that's the first thing, and that's what that's what my little aha was. I probably didn't call it that at that moment. It was like, dang, these folks know a lot of stuff, <laughs> and I assumed that they probably didn't because they didn't have the advantage of higher education. So I think that still permeates a lot of thinking from the left and just from educated people generally, and I find myself in all kinds of settings constantly fighting to say. Don't just involve working folks and farmers and country people when you finish designing your programs that you now want them to implement. Get them at the outset designing the programs. <laughs> you know, get them engaged at that conceptual level, that intellectual level, because without a doubt, the programs would be a whole lot better if that happened. So anyway, that's a long rant about it, but I, I really think that two-tiered view of education underlies, uh, or at least it provides kind of the foundation for a lot of the other uh, things that propel the divide. Hmm. Can you tell me, um, give me some maybe more concrete examples of what your experience has been working with um, folks in this region and, and rural people um, as, as they if, as they're being brought into these um, programs or um, or brainstorming places or places where their expertise is is being called in mm -hmm. um, how have you seen that played out um, in good ways oh yeah all, all kinds of ways um, when we started um, Appalachian sustainable development back in 1995 by that point I had been in Southwest Virginia for 10 years and we started to think about how do you build an economy that works better for people and better for the land, the environment. Nobody really knew. Um, it hadn't been, it hadn't been the, the normal way of building an economy up to that point. So we started talking to tobacco farmers 
about what was going on with them. This was the period when the tobacco allotments were shrinking, uh, profitability was getting slimmer and slimmer, and uh, so tobacco, which had been a kind of a core crop for a lot of small to mid-sized farmers, was was on its way out. And and we went and met with tobacco farmers in Lee County, uh, in far southwest Virginia, in Scott County, a little bit over the border in Hawkins County, Tennessee, those kinds of places. And what we found was that rather than just kind of desperately holding on to tobacco until to the bitter end, which was kind of the approach that the land grants and extension were taking, sort of a nothing can replace tobacco mindset, we found a lot of farmers that were anxious to stay in farming, but to do something else. And, and these were not, you know, hippie transplant farmers. These were born and raised folks from Lee County and other places. And so we worked with them to create this Appalachian Harvest Food Hub that's, I'm glad to say, still going 20 plus years later. But fundamentally, we had to work with them, and they then helped us figure out both the farming end. We brought some knowledge to it, and we did bring some some um, of Virginia Tech and UT's resources, but it was really the farmers themselves. And then the marketing piece, which was critical. Mm, no, that's great. Um, and when you were running for uh, District 9 as a Democratic candidate, I mean, I know you lost your bid, but uh, you ran a really hard, good race. Um, and I wonder what messages were you bringing to the fore um, as you did all those, I think you did like hundreds of town halls um, across that district. What messages were you bringing to the fore that you felt really resonated yeah, um, yeah. with locals? I, I appreciate that you said hundreds. It was actually about 102 Oh, okay. Let's, let's just <laughs> well, round it up. This is such a big. Let, let's round it up to thousands. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we did fourteen thousand hall meetings. <laughs> yeah, it, I bet they, it kind of felt like that. Yeah, it did. Um, it did. But you know what? Sometimes. Even though, again, yeah, all the context for my race is is always that some things did work and did move the needle, but ultimately we lost pretty handily. But those town halls yeah. were were really. Uh, quite something, and and they were they were sort of a combination. I always pitched what I believed because I felt like if you get fifty or two hundred people in a little community center in Metazadan, you, you know they need to know who you are, what you what you stand for. But it was most of it. It was typically ninety minutes to two hours, and most of that was chatting. Most of that was me listening and then responding to questions. But in my little pitch in the town halls and the rest of the campaign. I always started with um, the fact that trickle-down economics has failed, that trickle-down don't, I would say, that in fact it's a suck-up economy that pulls wealth out of farmers and family-owned businesses and Main Street and community banks and all of that to an ever-smaller group of ever-larger corporations, whether they were the mega-banks or the the Tysons of the world, that, that. So that was, that was always the starting point. We have this economic paradigm that Democrats and Republicans alike have embraced that simply has failed most Americans and has failed spectacularly in places like Appalachia and other predominantly rural areas. Then the second half of the message was the good news is that there are hundreds of people in small towns and rural communities around the country who are creating much better alternatives. Not just talking about it, not just 
pondering um, or writing, some of that, but mostly doing. And that these, these alternative, what I came to call in my book, bottom-up uh, economies, were real. They were leading to tangible improvements in people's lives. They were creating businesses and jobs. And that the big problem we had was that because we were so stuck on this elite-driven top-down, trickle-down, all those alternatives got the breadcrumbs. They got what fell off the table in terms of both investment and the right policy. And so that, that was the basic framing. The, the current mm-hmm. paradigm, it isn't working. It's the opposite of what it says. And, and we have the foundation of experience and knowledge to build much better economies that work for people and work for the land. That was really the message. Now, of course, I ended up talking about all the issues, but that was the core. And it was remarkable how widely that resonated. Hmm. Um, And even though, you know, ultimately you lost that bid, there was some evidence there that, uh, that there is room for those kinds of conversations and even progressive, maybe even some liberal um, politics and policy that it can exist in a rural context. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about that because I think it's kind of uh, what drives a bit of the rural urban bridge initiative, um, the organization you've um, you co-founded. Absolutely. Um, that that progressive politics actually or and policies actually do um, have a place in a rural context. Right. Oh, absolutely. And and the the cool thing is when you start with real world examples. If I would talk about the experience with the tobacco farmers and the creation of Appalachian Harvest, or I would talk about what we did in sustainable forestry and, and um, wood flooring that came out of that, what happened in uh, the home ownership program, it was really pretty, uh, pretty small step from talking about that experience to talking about how policies either helped or hurt that kind of economy. Because most people, you'd you'd get the occasional skeptic, but most people, regardless of their politics or even their education background, agreed with the critique. The trickle-down hadn't, that it was sucking up, and that these other alternatives, which often they had not heard of, were really exciting to them. So then the question was, okay, what would you do as a congressperson to promote that? And then it, it was just these small steps to say, well, well, look what the current policy propels. Look what, for instance, economic development policy propels. So frequently on the campaign trail, I talked about how we've, we spend about $100 billion a year, local, state, and federal, on tax incentives for the biggest corporations. We compete with each other. Southwest Virginia competes with Eastern Kentucky. Scott County competes with, with Tazewell County. And we offer these lucrative subsidy packages for corporations, some of whom turn out to be decent employers and long-term, but many of whom are transient, many of whom come and go after a few years. And I would talk about the example where Bristol recruited a Cabela's to come to Exit 5 on Interstate 81 with an incentive package that was almost $50 million for one store to set up shop so they could create a cluster of stores and businesses around that. Meanwhile, the same leaders 
are trying to revitalize State Street in the downtown of Bristol and, and doing some things for it. But the day that the Cabela's deal was announced in the Bristol paper, this almost $50 million package, was the same day that at the back of, this, of the same issue with the Bristol paper, they announced the winner of the Entrepreneur of the Year Award for downtown Bristol. And they described her business, and then they talked about what she got, $5,000. So you got 5000 versus $50 million. That's a $10,000, 10,000-fold difference. And I would say to people, when we have policies like that, how could we possibly expect local independent businesses to compete, to thrive, when we're spending so much public money your money, my money, to recruit businesses that are already cash rich and already have so many advantages. So it was always really very um, small, as I said, small step between talking about the examples, good and bad, and the kinds of policies that either helped or hurt. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, how does, I mean, that's such a powerful example. And, you know, as a local rural person, uh, if that were presented to me, I would just uh, be overwhelmed um, at the the difference between that five thousand dollars and the uh, the local entrepreneur and the Cabela's. I mean, how does it still get drowned out by single party politics? How how are we still climbing the steep hill um, where where single party politics is uh, is the driving force? Right. Well, I think that the Republicans have been able to establish a kind of a one-party rule in so many of our Appalachian counties and so many rural counties across the country. Again, in part because they talk a lot better than we do. They've got great one-liners. Mm -hmm. In part, I would say, putting on my somewhat negative partisan hat, they're willing to be extremely loose with the truth and say what they feel needs to be said. But turning it back on us, it's because we have not presented a consistent, compelling alternative, plain and simple. We haven't. On the one hand, the Democratic Party on cultural issues has clearly become more liberal. And personally, I'm glad for that. But for conservative people in small towns, the cultural sorts of changes, what's now considered acceptable, normal, laudable, has shifted quite a bit, and it's a bit of a shock to a lot of people, the cultural changes. So the Democratic Party has, in fact, become quite a bit more liberal on those issues. But at the same time, they've become more neoliberal, for the most part, on economic issues. So it's a, it's a double whammy. The, the kind of disruptive or worrisome from some people's point of views shifts in our social and cultural norms are accompanied not by a similarly progressive economic platform, but by an economic platform that embraces investor-driven trade policy that's hollowed out rural communities or big ag policies that have really almost destroyed uh, thousands of, of ag-based communities because of the favoring of the, the big four in meat processing and the big fertilizer and seed companies and all of those things. It's, it's not rocket science, but we, we keep struggling against this. And the fact that the Republican Party has gone so far to the right has only made it more difficult because now Democrats are either trying to counter the extremism, which I understand, or they feel like they, they, they present a sort of 
at least we're not crazy kind of definition of what it means to be a liberal or a Democrat. So people are given the choice, this guy who talks a good game but seems a little bit nutty, or these folks who say, hey, we're not as bad as them. What the heck kind of a choice is that? We'll be right back after this from The Daily Yonder. Hi, I'm Xander Brown with The Daily Yonder. Check out The Yonder Report, a new weekly podcast rounding up the latest rural news. Produced by The Daily Yonder and Public News Service, you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Everywhere Radio. Well, is is bridging the rural-urban divide mostly about better frameworks, better communication, different narratives, or is it is it what's the ratio between that and the doing and showing yeah, yeah. what it looks like? Yeah, I'm convinced that it has to be founded on the doing. So this is why, so, so Ruby, and thanks for that great, you did a terrific job explaining Ruby. Um, I may quote you on it because I don't think I've been able to do it quite so well. <laughs> but Ruby has these three initiatives, one around best practices of candidates who've done well, in rural communities, which we can talk about if you want. One is our rural-urban divide training that we've done about 20 times now and keeps evolving, which really gets to the heart of how we got here and then what we can do. And then the third and kind of newest piece that we're, we're in the process of launching is enabling local communities. Now, that might be the, the local Democratic committee in many cases, but it could also be a local environmental group or social justice group encouraging and enabling them to start engaging in a daily way or a regular way, let's say, with their neighbors on solving problems in the community. Not proselytizing. That's something that they should also do when the time is right. Um, Not writing postcards talking about how bad the other candidate is. All that stuff is, you know, something people do and and needs to be done. We're talking about now... How, how many times have a local Democratic committee, as a Democratic committee, been seen out there rehabbing a home for an elderly person who needs a, a home repair or a new roof? How many times have the local liberal groups worked with the Chamber of Commerce and the Main Street Association to build up a buy local campaign or a farmer's market support campaign? How many times have they focused on harnessing some of their resources to create scholarship possibilities for local kids to go to technical school, community college, or college. All of these kind of everyday things that should be done and and can be done with other local groups, churches, rotaries, Kiwanis, businesses. If if we begin to engage in that work as just part and parcel of what it means to be political, in rural places. I think three things happen. One is good stuff gets done, right? Homes get rehabbed, uh, senior centers get get a new wing, uh, downtown businesses do better. Second thing is we'll start to finally see our rural neighbors as our equals or betters in some cases. It When you work side by side with somebody, the educational and cultural artifacts tend to slip away and and because you're you're both at the same level whether you're swinging an axe or running a chainsaw or whatever you're doing and then the third thing that we think will happen out of that is that 
those same liberals and progressives will start advocating for better rural development policy. They'll start advocating. Like the Biden administration, and I was no Biden guy. I was a Bernie guy. But they have, for all their flaws, they have put forward several really substantive um, initiatives for rural, including the Rural Prosperity Program, which started out as a $5 billion initiative. It's been whittled down to $1 billion, but still a really good bottom-up approach to, to rural development. Well, anyway, most liberals don't know the first thing about it and probably wouldn't be interested if they heard the name. But you start working in your community and identifying the problems and the solutions, I think you're going to become advocates for the right kind of policy. I mean, uh, I feel like I'm I'm 100% with you, the practice of participation and engagement, uh, building relationships with your neighbors, showing up in daily common ways, um, builds that trust over time and that change moves at the pace of trust and relationship. Um, and But I also want to just say, I mean, is, is it working anywhere? Uh, at, do you see this um, playing demonstrated um, and and that it's that this is working, or is this just a really long term um, strategy for for building communities? Um, yeah, it is a very long term strategy. So it is working in the sense that a few of the um, in most cases it's been local democratic committees that have gone through the rural urban divide training we provide. A few of them have actually started to implement some of these things, and they're really excited about it. It's kind of a new direction, a new focus. They recognize that what they've done up to this point has not made a difference. They're, they're not making headway, so there's a lot of energy behind it. Now, is it going to add up to a different view of a, what liberals, progressives, and Democrats are? We don't know. But, but our project is this, that we're going to, if we can get the support, we're going to set this up in eight different local communities in four different states do a poll before we get going in all of those communities to see what the current view is of liberals, progressives, Democrats, and then probably do a poll midway through, but, but after two years, do another poll to see if anything has moved. Now, we think it will take a good bit more than two years for to really see the results, because people who highly mistrust you are not going to change their perspective overnight. But our hope is that in two years we'll see enough movement that the major liberal and progressive organizations will decide this is a strategy worth adopting and join us in doing it on a much larger scale than these, these eight pilot communities. We haven't really gotten a chance to talk about you personally and your own experience in, you know, planting roots where you have and the farming that you do and the writing and the, your own practice of participation um, in your community. And I wonder if you want to say anything about those things, about how your own life is informing the work you're doing day to day. Well, I mean, it is in the sense of what I said at the beginning, that you're, you're when you farm, you're constantly humbled uh, because although you you accumulate knowledge and skill, you're also uh, regularly shown what you don't know. My my friend Tom Peterson, who started farming in Southwest Virginia just a few years after me, we 
ran into each other a couple of summers back when it was a particularly difficult time in the season. And he said to me, do you ever think that the longer you farm, the less competent you are? And I said, yeah, buddy. <laughs> so farming is such, I mean, it's so enriching. And for me, it's, it's very much, you got to use your brain, but you're also using your body so much that it's a tremendous relief from all the work I do that is kind of people oriented. And I, I'd lose my mind if I couldn't farm, <laughs> if I couldn't, if I couldn't get in the dirt and get out the chainsaw and all that stuff, I just couldn't, I couldn't handle it. Um, but what's happening is that I not only learned from farming, but all of that farming activity and all of the kind of local economy work that, that we've done here, but I do it all around the country. It's just constantly surfacing new ideas. People are doing new things that are strengthening local economies, rebuilding community, tackling health and healthcare in a new way. And so there's just this steady upwelling of new information and, and um, new insights. And that then feeds back into the training that Ruby does, that feeds back into the, the rural development policy piece of, of where we need to be there. So yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a, a dance back and forth pretty much all the time. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Whitney. That's all for this week's show. I want to remind you to register for the Rural Assembly Everywhere virtual gathering that will be held May 10th and 11th. It's for rural advocates and the rural curious, listeners and leaders, neighbors and admirers. We'll enjoy two days of virtual programming featuring artists and poets, civic leaders and experts. You can register for free at ruralassembly.org. That was an episode of the Everywhere Radio podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at the Rural Assembly or Daily Yonder websites. We turn now to Berea College's recent memorial for Bell Hooks. A prolific and trailblazing author, a poet, professor, cultural critic, and one of the country's foremost feminist and anti-racist scholars. She was also an activist and a friend to many. The memorial was hosted by Linda Strong Leak, who was Berea College Provost, Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion, and a professor of African and African American Studies before becoming Provost at Haverford College in Philadelphia. She introduces Paige Melman and Beverly Guy Sheftall and concludes the program. Paige Billman is the kind of student every faculty member dreams of. Brilliant, kind, thoughtful. There are so many things I could say about Paige. She was one of my very first students when I came to Berea in 2002. And she became Bell's very first assistant. And she became more than just a student and assistant to Bell. She became a friend. Let's welcome Paige. Y'all, that is a hard lineup to follow, I gotta tell you. Um, and I feel like I don't really have any credentials to be standing up here. And that's the best reason for me to be standing up here because Belle was not a person who loved people for credentials or for accomplishments. Um, 
But like many of you here today and many obviously across the world, my life has been deeply impacted by the written word of Bell Hooks. I also had the great fortune of 17 years of what I would call a quiet friendship with Bell. It's kind of hard for me to talk up here because one of the main things that I learned from Bell is what people do around fame. And so I have um, really protected my relationship with Bell over the years because I knew her to just be a wonderful person, uh, not just a famous person. But I want to share a little about, a bit about what I know about Bell because of my relationship with her as we honor her today. I want to highlight the consistency between her writing and her life and avoid the trap of making a saint of a person whose way of being was in many ways one we can all emulate and should emulate. I met Belle when she came to Berea College in 2004. At that time, I was a single mother and a double major. Um, I was working twice the number of typical student labor hours so that I could meet the Kentucky State work requirements for housing, childcare, and food stamp assistance to get by. Uh, like every, most everyone else at Berea, and maybe especially everyone else in the Women's Studies Department, I was overjoyed that Belle was coming. But I was also a little shy about it, and I was prepared to let other students with more freedom and more confidence vie for the position of Belle's assistance. I interviewed with her anyway at the urging of my supervisor at the Writing Center. And when I went to talk with Belle in her little office in Draper, I quickly made a classic interview mistake and mentioned being a single mother. But as I remember it, we spent most of the rest of the interview talking about my three-year-old son. And I think that was actually a big part of what sealed the position for me, because Belle loved kids. So I learned in that first conversation that I should not expect typical responses from Bell Hooks. As Bell's assistant, I helped arrange details of talks, drove her to and from the airport, typed up handwritten documents for her, which was challenging, and helped organize and archive some of her papers. I got to sit in on many conversations that were reserved for faculty and staff, and to see the way that she made the most distinguished professional squirm with her, um, her challenging uh, theories and ways of being. I sat under her teaching about race and class and sexuality and love and watched her um, the way that she interact with, interacted with people. Um, but much of my work with Belle was play. Belle was always a very playful person. Some days our work together might consist of a goodwill run to search for mystery novels and secondhand clothes. Or we might stop a task to go get Snickers bars or to go to Sonic where Belle looked like to get kids meals and save the toys for my son. We'd often stop on our way to do anything so Belle could talk with various friends and neighbors in town. In the spring and summertime, Belle would never hesitate to urge me to pull over and run into any person's yard to steal flowers. I swiped countless blooms, blooms of hydrangea, peony, and zinnia from uh, Berean flower beds. The bed vases before Belle's Buddhas were never empty in those days. We usually worked out of Belle's house where there were lots of visitors and often music playing in the background, from Sweet Honey in the Rock to the Gospel of Aretha Franklin to Leonard Cohen's Ten New Songs. Once I moved away from Berea to pursue my own graduate studies, Belle continued to be a close friend to me. We shared letters and phone calls and visits. 
She cheered me in my academic and professional accomplishments, but most importantly, she continued to challenge me and encourage my growth as a parent in my relationships and in my intellectual life. I was fortunate to be present for the opening of her institute, for other events there, and for the dedication of her papers to Berea College. Over many years, her values and ways of being in the world proved to be consistent. As we Appalachian folks are fond of saying, Belle, in the best sense of this phrase, never got above her raisin. I can say without hesitation that I never saw Belle relate any differently to a person of power and prestige than she did to a neighbor or a student of any social class or background. I don't think I can say that about any other person I've ever known. Um, to get kind of biblical with it, Belle was not a respecter of persons um, based on their status. She, she liked or disliked people for their characters rather than for their status or achievements. Both her praise and her critiques were genuine and freely shared. In my longing for comfort in the weeks after her death, I returned to wounds of passion and all about love and was reminded of her fierce commitment to honesty, which is something a lot of people have mentioned today. I was reminded of that commitment and newly awed by the ways I witnessed that play out in her life. She held everyone to the high standard of their best selves. I've been stung by her words about my choice of outfit or romantic partner, just as I've been bolstered by her compliments about my intellect, heart, or earrings. With Belle, I could always trust there would be no bullshit. Belle also maintained a humble relationship to money and success. Her financial success seemed to be an ongoing surprise to her, and she worked to find the most ethical ways to have and use money. She held an admirable tension between generosity and thrift. For example, she would give me stacks of her books, taking time to sign each title page, but would haggle with the unsuspecting clerk at the thrift store to save 25 cents on a scarf. If you're from Kentucky or any other Appalachian or Southern state, especially the rural parts, you know the significance of Belle coming back and staying here to live and work. Her choice to come and be with us, to stay with us, and to have faith in the goodness of people here cannot be underestimated in value. In a region where many progressive people who find success out-migrate, she stayed, despite struggling with some of our undeniable social problems and her own periods of loneliness and alienation. In her dedication to her home place, Kentucky, she lent courage to so many of us doing the same, working to create more loving, just, and inclusive communities across the region. For Belle, there was no discernible boundary between theory and action. She was a practitioner of love, she got her hands dirty and her heart bruised in her efforts to build a beloved community. She was never the kind of intellectual or writer who did her work from a safe and inaccessible pedestal. She got down into it with the rest of us. It would be a disservice to her and to her friends and readers to present her as a person who did the work of love perfectly. None of us can do that. And she never pretended to. She struggled in relationships like we all do. Her forthright way of being sometimes offended people, and she had to do the work of reconnection and reconciliation at times. But I can testify for myself and for other regular folks I've talked with in these last few months that she never stopped working to grow in love. I was able to visit with Belle last November, shortly before her illness made conversation nearly impossible. She was already sick, really sick, but still open-hearted. I cherished the talks we had across those two days. 
I had not seen her in person for over two years because of the pandemic, but I knew her health wasn't good. When I left, I was even more worried about her than I was before I came. She was adamant in her insistence on autonomy, the freedom to care for herself and to be at home, but it was clear she needed more help than she was accepting. During our visit, we talked about the people she loved and longed to see and be with. She talked openly about her fears of loneliness. I listened to the Leonard Cohen song, Boogie Street, on repeat in my car after I left her house, the place that I'd first heard that song. And I found myself captivated by the lines, so come my friends, be not afraid. We are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love, we disappear. I hope that she would be surrounded by love and care when it was her, her time to go. When I came back to see her again a month later, she was no longer able to insist on independence. And wonderfully, so many of those people she said she wanted to be with her were there or had just been or, or would be. She had her creature comforts, the gifts um, for people who knew her well, chocolate and juicy fruit, soft black skirts from Beverly, her favorite t-shirts always clean. The people she cherished were there to take hold of her hands, her lovely, long-fingered writer's hands, as she left this world in the same spirit of love she spoke of and taught about. From her sisters to Linda and Kevin and Chris and Meredith and Timmy and Libby and Stephanie and so many others, I realized with gratitude that she had done it. She had built a messy and perfect, committed and full-hearted beloved community around her in both the most immediate and the widest sense. I'm deeply grateful that I got to be a part of that circle. May we all, with her courage, commit to loving each other so well. May her words continue to light the way of love and justice for all of us. Dr. Beverly I. Sheftall is one of Bell's oldest and dearest sister feminist friends. She wanted me to share with you that since they met more than 40 years ago, she and Bell have been out black feminist. <laughs> Beverly is the founding director of the Women's Center at Spelman College. Bell also shared a really beautiful story at the last um, NWSA we attended in 2012 when she shared that she, when she first, when she attended her first NWSA, um, she didn't have a room and she had about $30 in her pocket and Beverly let her stay in her room. So they have been friends ever since then. Beverly Guy Talk. say I uh, let her stay in my room. It was a raggedy dorm, the NWSA, and I let her sleep in the single bed and I slept on the floor and we talked all night that night and talked for 40 more years. Some of my best times over the past 40 years were spent with Gloria in all the places she lived. Santa Cruz, Oberlin, New Haven, New York, Sarasota, and finally, this place, Berea. I spent more time here over the past several months, speaking at the Bell Hook Center at Shadi's invitation, 
and during Gloria's last days. I always called her Gloria and knew her as Gloria. What I want to remember are our endless talks about feminism, people we knew and loved or found challenging, shopping, silly girlfriend talk, reminiscences about our romances dwindled over the years, what we were writing, what made us angry or joyous, what we liked in the magazines I mailed to her after reading them, what bonded us for so long in good and difficult times, our hopes and dreams. A frequent question she asked me over and over was, are you lonely and are you seeing anyone? I knew what motivated those inquiries and really wished I could find a way to remedy what had eluded her, despite the extraordinariness of her productive life, reading and writing and speaking and teaching and always thinking. We imagined what it might be like for both of us to grow older in Atlanta, to reconnect with someone we both met in New York at Starbucks over a decade ago, to simply spend more time together and laugh and gossip. My final note to Gloria, and I wrote her many notes, is this. I have loved your relentless efforts, mainly with pen and speech, to imagine a different world and remain hopeful still. I am hopeful about the vitality of feminism when I see young black girls writing open letters to rap artists about the toxic, misogynistic nature of too many of their images. I am ecstatic when I see feminist and queer black women catalyzing a Black Lives Matter movement in the aftermath of Ferguson. I am joyous when I see women in the streets of Italy, Egypt, the Ivory Coast, and Libya risking their lives in the pursuit of their own liberation. I smile when I pondered the example of my own mother and your great-grandmother, Belle, the feminist in our lives a long time ago. I am exhilarated by the memory of our fallen sisters whose struggles for a better world are now more legendary. Sojourner Truth, Anna Julia Cooper, Ida Wells Barnett, Lorraine Hansberry, Polly Murray, Coretta Scott King, Audre Lorde, June Jordan, and now you, Gloria Watkins. I am grateful for the feminist work of the African American Policy Forum, founded by Professors Kimberly Crenshaw and Luke Harris, whose interventions in male-centered racial justice initiatives, initiatives need our continued support especially around recent vicious right-wing attacks on critical race theory.
if I had just one more visit with Gloria, this is what I would say to her. You cannot imagine how much you are loved and how you have impacted so many lives all over the world. You would be amazed at how often we are saying your name. I am still not entirely sure about the decision, decision you made during your final months here, but I am at peace with them and know that you are in a better place. I hope that when my time comes, I will remember your clarity, your humor, your sweet times with loved friends, and all of the many ways you said to all of us goodbye. I miss you, Gloria, every day, and I will love you forever. Thank you so much. So um, I will end and just say a little bit about my relationship with Belle. Belle Hooks was my friend. I don't, I don't say that lightly. Her friendship was something I rarely talked about to people who were not close to me because I never wanted to be one of those people who wanted something from her, who were just biding their time until they made the, best, the big ask for what they wanted all along. Our friendship happened naturally. It started with a once a week lunch meeting and evolved into a two, sometimes three times a week lunch meeting, coffees, phone calls. I never expected that one of my best friends in the world would be this feminist icon. This person who taught me so much about life and love and self-care. Belle and I shared many things. A love of good old-fashioned Southern food, especially my mac and cheese, my sweet potato pies and greens, and my special baked beans. We also loved hot fudge sundaes from Dairy Queen and often shared one because Belle loved to share food with the people she loved. I can't sometimes believe that she loved me, but she did and I loved her. Belle and I had many things in common. We were both sassy little Southern girls who talked too much, who often talked back, who loved to read. We both had five sisters. I have two brothers. She just had her beloved Ken. And we both loved music, gospel music, old school R&B, good country music, so much music. We both love beautiful men. <laughs> Hopefully most of the time they were beautiful, not just on the outside, but the inside. But we did love beautiful men. 
And because of Belle, I learned to love to dance. I was and still am one of those black people who does not have natural rhythm. <laughs> but with Belle, I danced and laughed and I found my voice. She helped me to fully embrace my black feminist self. Now, like most good friends, Belle and I often disagreed. For instance, I still love The Color Purple. It's one of my favorite books, and Belle, I hated it. <laughs> I agreed with Michelle Obama's decision to focus on her daughters when Barack became president. Because as the mother, mother of daughters myself, I worried more about the, how the world would react to and treat my amazing, articulate, intelligent daughters than almost anything else, just like Michelle. I loved dogs, and she hated and feared them. So whenever she came to my house, I would put the dog outside though that she, so that she would feel safe. We argued, we laughed, we cried together when we lost loved ones. I was with her in Puerto Rico when she literally shook the Women's Studies Association with her powerful speech. I remember our amazing week at Martha's Vineyard. She took me there for my 50th birthday. When we walked to the inkwell to watch the beautiful black women gather together to swim. And when we were walking back, she stopped a stranger to take us back because she was tired. <laughs> I remember when we were in the airport traveling and people would walk by and whisper, is that bell hooks? And she would just smile. I remember when she lit, how she lit up when she saw babies and small children. As Paige said, she loved children. I remember most of all that small, powerful voice, the way she challenged all of us to live our lives out loud, to speak our truths. She taught me that I, that we, all deserve to be loved with a capital L. That love is an action. That love is a verb. I loved my friend and I miss her. And I still cannot believe that she is gone. As we end today, I want you to know that we will keep Belle's work and memory alive. She worried about all of the black women writers who died and whose memories seemed to fade into the distance. Every time another black woman writer left us, we would talk about her project, the Bell Hooks Institute, and how she wanted the institute to live on long after she was gone. So I proudly announce today that Berea College, in conjunction with the Bell Hooks Estate, will reopen and relaunch the Bell Hooks Institute in the next year to honor her life and her work. You can view the full two-hour memorial service at the Berea College YouTube site. Thank you for listening to Making Connections News. All of our stories about opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities are available on our website, makingconnectionsnews.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering, from WMMT Mountain Community Radio.